I'll try and I'll try and get the I'll, I'll try and not fuck the intro up because that last week was bad. At least you sound hot. Yeah, that's, that's what everyone keeps saying. That's, wow. that's great. I've got a face you're, for radio. Your fucking barns so sound so hot. <laughs> there's a, mate, there's a reason it's a podcast, not a vlog. <laughs> David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la la budget. When my eyebrow goes up, it's a joke. Do police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Hello and welcome to yet another wonderful week on the Iron Duke podcast, your weekly catch-up of all things policy, politics, where we go through our peaks and our pits, interesting bits, and anything that fits. <laughs> I'm Byron Terrace and giggling over there is Maddie Burgess. You nailed it! Hello and welcome back everyone. This week we're going to recap uh, Bromicron again. We're going to talk about the bro testers. Uh, Byron's going to talk about, about polling and I'm going to talk about the not so certain rent controls. Byron, kick us off. What's your pit of the week? Uh, my pit of the week is, uh, it's an interesting pit to, to kind of go, it's more like a shallow puddle really. It's, it's been a good week then. The state of political polling in New Zealand. This is an interesting one. Where is the New Zealand public right now? What is the vibe of polling for our major political parties mm-hmm. and also opinions on uh, major concerns such as the right direction, wrong direction of the country, what's the gender balance in terms of voting and other major things like closures of the border? Well, there's been heaps of polls lately. There has, and they range from Nationals going to win the next election by quite a bit to the centre-left block is ahead by 13% without the blue team, yellow team even getting a look in. So... Support for Labour has increased in our latest News Hub Read Research poll. Labour's on 40, dropping one since our last poll in November. Jacinda Ardern and Labour have also taken a hit in the One News Kantar public poll. Something for Blue to celebrate too. National, welcome back to the 30s. 31.3%. But there's bad news for David Seymour. ACT has absolutely tanked with the arrival of Christopher Luxon. There have been six... I just had to count that. <laughs> Six political polls since the beginning of 2022, 2020 part it's three. It's more than one a week. It's more than one a week. And they've ranged in timeframes from when they've been taken through uh, December into January and then rolling on into early February. And there's no particular correlation between any of them and the timeframes they've been taken. We've got polls from One News Kantar, which generally speaking favours slightly to the centre-right. That says the centre-left block, the government, is ahead by about 4%. Then you've got two Roy Morgan polls, which Roy Morgan, smaller sample size, uh, a mixture of landline mobile online, uh, and and one of those ones that kind of gets disregarded in the media here in New Zealand – that's showing at the, over the same polling period as the One News poll that National uh, are ahead and National and Labor, uh, National and uh, Act are ahead. So the centre right is ahead. They're just not. That exactly. It doesn't feel like the the vibe doesn't. Have feel you right have you ever been polled? I've never been polled. This I've is one of those polled. interesting ones, right? Then you've got the private poll of the Taxpayers Union, Curia, um, David Farrar's lot, quite a reliable, robust yeah. poll for December. And regular. And regular, monthly, showed that the centre-left is ahead by 7%, so yet another variation. And just this week on Monday, Read Research uh, for News Hub brought out quite an in-depth poll uh, conducted just for the end of January into the early side of February, and it shows the centre-left block 13 
points ahead. That's uh, Greens plus Labour. Wow. I'm not particularly interested in the details of each political party, not in my in my pizza pits. But what I'm interested in is that there's such a lot of spread right now, and mm. I think that's a, I think there's two reasons that that's going on. First reason, I think New Zealand's a little bit frothy about the issues right yeah. now, and I also think there it's I wouldn't say division, but the issues are starting to harden on the edges. The edges are starting to harden. There's a frothiness in the middle, but the edges are starting to harden. That's kind of my take on polling. And I think it's difficult to know where New Zealand's at. And that is my shallow puddle for the week. Well, my pit is, um, mine's a really obvious one. It's like a like an open cast mine. Mine is the anti-mandate protest. And like, there's not really much to say about this. I'm all for people's right to protest. I'm all for people's freedom of speech. The reason that I've picked this as my pit, because I, I'm pretty sure a couple, couple of months ago, I said, I said it was a peak, the fact that, you know, so many people were getting out to exercise their civic democratic rights. You did. So you've had police who have been assaulted. You've had politicians who have had to be escorted back to their to their homes. The institution that is the backbencher had to close because they received so much abuse from these individuals who are now camping on the lawns. And I think it's really telling that no politician received them when they arrived. So all these people come here from across the country and no politician even got out on the lawn and said, hey, thanks for coming. Now, I'm in two minds about this. Is this kind of disrespectful because of all the effort they've put in? Well, no, not really. When you're going to show up to Parliament and you don't really have an ask, you're just there to hurl abuse, preaching xenophobic and sexist comments um, about the Prime Minister, I think it was awful. And look, I've read some nasty tweets that basically said, sorry, does your freedom to protest infringe on my freedom of movement across the Wellington CBD? A lot of people are really unhappy about it in a way that I don't think they were when we saw the freedom freedom marches a couple of months ago. Uh, I've said it before on this podcast and I'll say it again. If this is as bad as our anti-mandate and anti-vax protests get, a few people sleeping on the lawn in Parliament... And maybe mm, yelling. Don't say that. What if it gets worse? There weren't actually that many of them, listeners, as well. We haven't really seen any reported numbers yet, but we don't think it's more than a couple of thousand people. Compare that to the school strike for climate change. There were tens of thousands, if not more, of them across the country. That's that's right. And I I do appreciate no politician coming out and uh, encouraging them and all of that kind of thing. I think that's. I think that's it should fair. have been. I think it would have been a sackable offence if one of them had. But I anyway, think, I think that's fair. Anyway, so that's your that's your pick. That's my pick. What's your peak? Well, my peak is uh, a, a little a little kind of bit of pride, a little bit of national pride. Um, we're doing really well with our Omicron outbreak, <laughs> and I think we should all we should all take a moment and actually say, "Hey, well done, New Zealand. We're doing a good job." You know, we've seen some really uh, interesting modelling. Uh, being you know put out there and in my opinion some of that modeling was completely implausible when it first came out and it's been proven to be so we've seen lots of people making their own risk-based decisions and people should be proud of that people aren't spending money that's what their risk-based decisions are yeah exactly and i think in this early stage of the outbreak we've just got to acknowledge that there is a bit of apprehension out there and people will make their own risk-based decisions 40 percent of the eligible population as of today wednesday when we're recording this have had their booster and that's a really good number for the world in terms of the speed and the uptake i think we should just have a, a little bit of a moment to say that's really good we get the we get the rewards later on when we do kind of go to the self-isolation model because people behind the border are actually making risk-based decisions we've done a good job okay so you had a shallow pit and a shallow peak well it's been a freaking flat week hasn't it the COVID curve has been flat as in, um, actually, shout out to Matthew Houdin on Twitter for putting together a bogus set of COVID modelling that just increased the case numbers by 33% a day and being right for most of the last week. Yeah. We, our numbers are so flat at the moment. And I think 
the decisions that everyday Kiwis are making at the moment are the right decisions and we're doing a good job as a country. That's not to say it's not going to get worse. I'm just saying right now, as of 9th of February, Omicron going everywhere. We were told there could be 50,000 cases a day by Waitangi weekend. Hasn't happened. Well done, New Zealand. Kia kaha. It'll probably peak over Easter and then there'll be no Easter bunny. Well, my peak of the week is the government walking back um, that kind of weird statement that uh, Minister Poto Williams made around rent control. Will you rule out rent controls this morning? We are not considering rent controls. And now I'm, I want to explain why they're bad, because I don't want those of you out there in Listenerville to think I'm just a, a capitalist drone. Rent controls are a really interesting one. Now, they've been trialled across the world. So parts of Sweden have them where basically, you know, the landlords and the renters are kind of two unions and they, they negotiate it between them. Germany has variations of them. At times, New York has had them. Everywhere it's been trialled, you just end up with the cesspit of unintended consequences. So I'll use an example from San Francisco. When they put rent controls in place, they found that landlords, 25% of all landlords sold their rentals. And whilst that sounds like a great idea because it brings more houses onto the first home buyers market, it actually means that there are less rentals available for, for those who need them. Look at that in a New Zealand context. You know, if Flooding the market for first home buyers wouldn't make any difference because people can't afford house deposits in the first place. And then those people who need rentals, they aren't there for them. The other thing people would do is if their house got captured in a rent control zone, they would just demolish the house so that they could then re build so it's a brand new dwelling to escape the rent controls. You have people who have multiple rentals and so they take those that are outside the rent controlled zone and over inflate the prices there to compensate for the fact that they're getting under market rent somewhere else. The worst one is probably subletting. You essentially create a black market where I, Maddie, have a rent controlled house and you, Byron, are super desperate so I sublet you mm, my rent controlled be, yeah. house mm. at an inflated price and then even more than that and this is an issue we already see in New Zealand is people hold on to the these rentals forever because they're at a fixed price, right? Mm. And that's an issue we already have in New Zealand. We have people living in houses that are too big for them already. So as a household size evolves, they don't move to create more space in the market for those who will need them. Think kids moving out, leaving home. So mum and dad would move into a smaller dwelling or a smaller rental that frees up their larger rental for another family to move into. They are getting in the way of an active market. In terms of just economics, you need prices to move freely. When you have rents that get set at one point every year, you get a massive increase because that's all you can do as a landlord. And what that does is instead of an incremental price increase that you can absorb in your daily spending happening over time, basically your spending goes up like a cliff in front mm. of you and you hit a wall and it doesn't move with you. So rent controls, not a good idea. Glad the PM with her comms degree ruled it out. And look, aside from building more houses, there are plenty of other solutions out there, which brings us really well into our guest of the week. We are joined by Vic Crockford. Now, Vic is the CEO of Community Housing Aotearoa. Prior to that, Vic has been in the government relations, comms, engagement space for a couple of big energy companies. Vic is a storyteller, a strategist, a columnist. We're super lucky to have her with us. Welcome. Oh, kia ora. Thank you for having me. This is our um, this is our first ever kind of multimedia channeled phone interview. Yeah. Phone interview. So we're quite excited. But like, we have been fluffing about with it for about thirty minutes. So this was it, this was good. We needed it. Vic, tell us a little bit more about community housing Aotearoa. What do you guys do? 
We're a peak body for the community housing sector and we work in collaboration with the National Māori Housing Advocate Te Matapihi to deliver policy, events, education, networking, thought leadership and it must be said a crisis bit of management lately. Um, and so we're, we're effectively a voice of the housing providers that exist between the state and the private market. So they offer lots of different ways to support people into housing, affordable rentals, transitional housing, and progressive home ownership. So how do you differ from Kaianga Aura? Our providers are usually regulated and not-for-profit entities, and they often deliver social services too. So they'll often have a more extensive kind of wraparound touch points with their tenants and residents. We also offer public housing that is non-state in the sense that uh, we have different relationships with our tenants and residents in terms of whether or not, for example, they can participate in rent-to-buy or progressive home ownership programs and how they can move on, yeah. Thanks for the introduction to CHA there. I absolutely love that. What a wonderful organisation. So give us a little bit on housing. Where are we at? I mean, we're constantly being bombarded with house prices going up. We're constantly being told that there isn't enough rental stock out there. So what's your take from your sector? Isn't that the uh, $24 billion question? Yeah, so (laughs) I don't want this to be a fact-throwing mission, but I do actually want to ground us in some numbers. There were 24,546 applicants on the housing register on the 30th of September last year. So that's an increase of 14.6% from the same time the previous year in 2020. And that excludes the tamariki, the children. And and I wanted to be, it's huge. Yeah. And And I wanted to be really specific about those numbers. Each of those numbers represents a person with aspirations, responsibilities, and the right to a decent home. I was at a speech by Professor Will Stephan, who's a climate scientist from Australia. He told us that he views himself as a climate doctor. So you don't go to the doctor with a serious illness and expect to you know, get given a Band-Aid and told mm. to give it a few years and see what you get. You go because you want an expert to tell you some hard truths, perhaps, and put a plan in place for yeah. making you better as soon as possible. In this moment, the providers that we support are our housing doctors. And they are telling me and our team all the time that the prognosis is full body breakdown. And that really means that we are seeing fundamental tears in our societal fabric. The position we endorse as an organisation is that we do need to start thinking transformationally. So those 24,000 people, that that is a massive number. Let's talk about the Mm. pressure points there. What has led to that? Is this a supply side issue? Is this a taxation issue? Tell us a bit more about that piece. We do need more new supply. There's no doubt about that. We can't continually shift the deck chairs around. But I think it's actually much more specific than that. We need more permanently affordable supply. And in terms of policy focus and indeed media focus, those are actually quite different things. So if you think about what's happened, we're now at a house price to income multiple of more than 11. And it's generally agreed that three and under is genuinely affordable. And we haven't necessarily geared ourselves up to do that, partly because we have spent the last 40 years dismantling piece by piece some of the key institutions that enabled affordable housing Mm. in the past. And sometimes we've done that intentionally, but sometimes not. And I would probably say for Tangata Whenua, the issues around homelessness started a couple of centuries ago. So when you've spent half a generation or, or more than seven in that 
pace, pulling stuff apart. It makes sense that it will take some time to figure out how the pieces go back together. But that is no excuse not to act urgently on the new affordable supply. Yeah, yeah. Of, of, of course. Um, two of the big interventions that subsequent governments over the last kind of you know 30 years have, have looked at, we're building lots and lots of public houses at the moment. Mm-hmm. In the past, that, that kind of stock hasn't increased as fast as otherwise would have. And we've also yeah. got things like the accommodation supplement, trying to help on yes. the demand side of the rental market. How are those two going at the moment? As a community housing sector, we work to complement the public housing stock. So we really support a strong public housing build program. And that's not any kind of political stance. You know, our bread and butter is looking at the best policy that works for affordable housing and certainly strong public housing build programs do work. I mean, if we look to Singapore, it does have a really strong and successful public housing program. Over 80% of the homes there are built by the government. We, we do support that that program. Obviously, we build homes across a range of options as well. So we endorse the accommodation supplement as a principle in terms of how we invest to support those who need help with their rent or their housing costs. But we think that it probably needs a refresh. So just so everybody understands what it is, it's a weekly payment that helps, you know, the people who live in homes provided by Kainga Order or our community housing providers with their rent or board or the general cost of owning a home. There's an annual spend of around $2.4 billion, making it our largest single housing expenditure. So it does assist over 360,000 households. And that's that's way more than I thought. But it was designed in a housing environment that no longer exists. The cost of housing basically outstrips what the accommodation supplement can possibly hope to achieve. It shows that the accommodation supplement is dwindling in its efficacy to address housing affordability over time. So (laughs) I think the thing that we want to avoid when we look forward, if things stay the same as they are right now, over the next decade, we could spend $24 and not necessarily have a lasting legacy of affordable homes. Wow. So we do think that there could be a refresh of that particular spend. Um, You know, if we take the current severe rental stress that's well documented and experienced by a lot of people, developing new affordable rental homes that are dedicated to those households that are eligible for that accommodation supplement would see the need for the supplement eliminated for them over time as those new houses are built. So if you design a program that ensures that the households can afford their rents in the first place without requiring the additional accommodation supplement top up. You know, that means that for each new rental home completed and moved into, that household has achieved independence from the accommodation supplement. We could combine that with the progressive home ownership program that is already in place and has been used, you know, well by the community housing sector. And that could really be quite a powerful combination. We're focused on the moment in time, which is the reform of the Resource Management Act. Those reforms do present opportunities to align the planning system we've got with a lot of the great innovation that's happening in ethical investment, for example. We can do that, actually, uh, from our perspective, by enabling inclusionary zoning or inclusionary housing. Some of what you're describing there is real moonshot thinking, which is is absolutely necessary in the long term. But as you're talking about, you know, that, that, that short term supply side issue, the number of people sitting on your wait list, what are people doing on the ground to be able to get more people into into their homes in the first place and then into their own homes eventually? 
So that's a really great question. And it is actually related to, to some of that moonshot thinking. So um, happily in Queenstown, that is a really clear example of the council, the developers and the community housing provider getting together to specifically design for affordability. Many years ago, Queenstown recognised that it was probably coming up towards a housing crisis. And so they started looking at the council level at this tool, inclusionary zoning, and they realised a lot of the price increases that we face in this region and in this country uh, are made up of the land cost. We're going to need a tool that addresses the price of that land. And one of those key tools that's used around the world is inclusionary zoning or inclusionary housing. So Mm. it's a way of addressing that land cost because it earmarks a proportion of new developments to be zoned affordable. And so Queenstown started just introducing this as a concept and saying, could this work here? And the result of that was was intentionally setting up the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust, which is one of our housing providers. The result has been that that community housing provider has gone from strength to strength to develop affordable rentals and houses specifically for progressive home ownership and mixed tenure developments. So that's a really clear example of innovation in the sense that it's partnership that has worked over time to deliver genuinely permanent affordable housing. I consider it innovative from that perspective. (laughs) And it was also a really great way of doing things at the local level in a way that worked for the particular local needs as well. So taking that tool and adapting it. Brilliant. And Can you just give us a a key message, a sentence on where you would like housing in New Zealand to get to in the next five years? I would like us to have an updated building code that mandates universal design for accessibility, an updated building code that enables healthier homes. I would like us to have a tool in place like inclusionary zoning that addresses the high land cost when it comes to housing. And I would like us to have taken the $2.4 billion from the accommodation supplement and used it to unleash new supply by investing in community housing providers. Vic, you're aspirational for New Zealand. We absolutely love it. Thank you so much for your time and what a robust discussion. Before you go, as is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we always finish with a hot or not. We try to keep it topical. Obviously, if you like what we're about to say, It's hot. If you don't, it's not. Maddie, kick us off. Public holidays creating four-day work weeks. Hot. Rent to buy schemes. Hot. And building a marae in Sydney. Don't know anything about it, but I'm going to say hot if they want it to be there. Fun fact, (laughs) one has just been consented. Cool. Brilliant. And from me, uh, camping on Parliament lawn overnight. Oh, look, I'm, I'm fully pro-vaccine, so I'm yeah. not. <laughs> I've outed myself there. <laughs> 70 years of Queen Elizabeth II. I'm also going to out myself as a Republican, so yeah, she's great, but go. not. <laughs> and this one should be easy, I think, is uh, 3.2% unemployment file title. That's what are we at now? At all. 3.2%, it's where we're at. Unemployment's really low, it's record low. Yeah, hot. <laughs> We got there. It just goes to show how much I'm keeping up with the employment stats. No You've got bigger fish to fry, that is for sure, Vic. Brilliant. Thank Vic. you thank you so much for your time, Vic. Really appreciate hearing from you and all your insights into the housing market. Oh, thank you. 